The internet is a truly amazing repository of knowledge. I came across this particular website. 25 truths about life we all need to remember. And every word was capitalised. That's just a great, straight screenshot. Now, whether all 25 truths are actually true, let alone actually worth remembering, that's up for grabs. That's for you to judge. It did list a few that struck me as having real value. Number three, everyone is fighting their own battle. That's pretty true. And maybe some of us here today are fighting battles. Battles that maybe other people around you don't realise. Number 21, so much can happen in one day. Clearly they've been to annual conference. A heck of a lot happens in one day at annual conference. Number 14, you are inherently worthwhile. As a Christian, I look at that and go, yes, because I know that every human being has been made in the image of the one true living God. But it also lists a whole bunch of others that maybe I'd want to question. Here's one of them, number five. Start before you feel ready. And then it says, don't wait for the perfect moment. You have to jump and build your parachute on the way down. As the Zen proverb goes, leap and the net will appear. Now, I know they mean it metaphorically, not literally. So I'm not going to be harsh on it, but... It did make me laugh when I read it. What about this one, though? Number 18. When you want something, the universe conspires on your behalf. And then it said, intentions and desires are powerful. Tell the universe you're ready. Act as if the thing you want is already yours. And the universe will arrange people, circumstances and opportunities to bring it to you. Now, if that's true, that is a very powerful strategy for life. That would indeed be a powerful and a precious truth. It's known, if you've heard it before, as manifesting to the universe, where you co-create your reality with the universe. But how do I know if it's true? What evidence is there? My guess is that the evidence is anecdotal. Did you hear about Lisa? Lisa really wanted to be an influencer on Instagram. So she started acting as if she was one. And look, now she has this amazing social media career. Does that make it a truth of the universe? What if you really want something, I mean really want something, and you manifest it to the universe with all you've got and you still don't get it? What does that mean? That you didn't want it enough? That you didn't manifest in the right way? So the problem's with you, isn't it? For not doing it right. See, when we grab hold of truths that aren't actually true, we lose our way. We fall victim to lies and deceit. And that ends up damaging both us and those around us. On the other hand, if you do discover a genuine precious truth, then you should grab hold of it with both hands and don't let go. Don't forget it or neglect it. And this week is all about one particular truth. 
a precious and a powerful truth. It's a truth to truly live by, since it fundamentally reconfigures how you understand yourself, how you relate to the one true living God, and your relationship with everyone else around you. But I think it's also a precious truth that we've neglected, or maybe we've satisfied ourselves with only the barest of superficial understanding of. And that's led, I think, to our detriment. So this week we're going to re-explore this precious and powerful truth, and I pray it will really reshape how you understand yourself, your relationship with God, and your relationship with everyone else. Because in this precious truth from God, you will find real joy and wonder and freedom. What is this precious truth to live by? Well, there's a space on page 10 for you to fill it in. Here it is. We are justified. We are justified. Now, this simple statement needs clarification unpacking because otherwise you might get the wrong idea. Who is the we in this statement? Are we talking about people at ANCON, people in the EU, people at Sydney Uni? Is it all people everywhere? Who is this statement talking about? Second, what do we mean when we say justified? Usually, if I say, I'm justified in what I did, we mean something like, I had a legitimate reason for it. It's defensible. I was right to do it. Is that what we mean when we say, we are justified? So if you think about it for a moment, you'll realise this could be a very dangerous statement to make. There are all sorts of things that I might say or that I might do that you don't think I am justified in doing. The whole Israel Folau controversy illustrates that point. Was he justified in putting up that post on Instagram or not? See, if any group of people says, we are justified, it raises the question... By whose measure? It can't possibly be that everyone is justified in whatever they choose to do. So you see that making this statement, we are justified, it's potentially explosive. Indeed, terribly, that is the extreme to which terrorists have taken it, justifying all sorts of behaviour. But I put it out to you up front, this very first talk, that this is a precious truth to live by. We are justified. And I stand by that, but the proper bounds of this statement need to be explored so that we can understand what it means and what it doesn't mean. And why rightly, rightly understood, it's a powerful and precious truth to live by. That's what we're going to do this week. So, let's start with a summary statement to clarify what it is that we mean when we say we are justified. You might like to fill it in there on your page. It maps out for you where we're going this week. What are we talking about? We're talking about the justification of sinners. You might like to fill in the blanks. The justification of sinners before the one true God By the grace of God, we're going to particularly focus on that aspect of this statement tonight, 
by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that'll be Tuesday night, through faith, that'll be Wednesday night, so that they might live for God, that'll be Thursday night, with a sure hope, that'll be Friday This is what we're going to be exploring this week. The justification of sinners before the one true God by the grace of God in Jesus Christ through faith so that they might live for God with a sure hope. And my prayer is not just that you will know it and understand it, but that it will become a precious truth for you. A firm launching pad for each and every day as you head out into God's world and an abiding source of deep joy and thankfulness in your heart. Now, if you need further convincing, some of the quotes at the bottom of page 10 show you how significant and precious others have held this Christian truth of justification to be. So, Michael Horton points out that justification is significant personally. You can see what he says there. The doctrine of justification lies at the centre, not merely of our systematic reflection on the meaning of salvation but of our piety, that is our religious practice, our mission and life together. And we're going to explore those topics this week. The doctrine of justification has also been majorly significant in church history. Martin Luther was an important figure in the Protestant Reformation of the 15th, 16th centuries and he claimed if this article, that is the Protestant understanding of justification, if this article stands... The church stands. If it falls, the church falls. Justification is no second-rate topic. And Jim Packer summarised its theological significance like this on your page. The doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas. Um, Atlas was a figure in Greek mythology who was made to carry the entire heavens. He says, the doctrine of justification by faith is like Atlas, it bears a world on its shoulders, the entire evangelical knowledge of saving grace. As I said before, this precious and powerful truth that we are justified, it's critical for how you think about yourself, your relationship with God and how you relate to others. But I wonder whether justification has such a precious and a powerful place in your own life. In your own understanding, do we need to re-explore it, recapture it? That's what we're going to do this week. So, what do we mean by justification? Have a look on page 11. There's a trap for English speakers when we read an English Bible on the topic of justification. The trap is that we have two completely different English words used to translate one family of words in the original language. You can see this if you look at Romans chapter 3 verse 26, halfway through the verses printed there on your page. He says there, it was to prove his, his, that is God's righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the one justifying the one who has faith in Jesus. You can see that the words translated as righteousness, just and justifying in the original Greek in which the New Testament was written all come from the same family of words, starting with that front piece, dikai. The point is, 
righteousness language and justified language in the Bible are talking about the same things. And that's important as you read your Bible, because if you're only looking for the word justified, you'll miss a whole lot the Bible has to say on the topic, because sometimes it's translated as righteousness language instead. So to understand what justification means, we need to understand the meaning of righteous. Well, what does righteous mean in popular speech today? Well, here's what UrbanDictionary.com says righteous means today. Righteous, containing the best possible attributable qualities. And then they very helpfully give an example. Oh man, that lasagna was righteous. (laughs) They give a second option for what righteous means. Here it is. Righteous, awesome, amazing, cool, exciting, etc., Often associated with surfers. Dude, that wave was righteous, man. That's so totally right. I think, however, I'd like to add another aspect. Outside the realms of slang, if you say to somebody, you're so righteous, I suspect we probably mean self-righteous at that point. That is, someone who thinks they have it all together, probably looks down on other people. To be righteous these days can carry negative connotations. But that's not what it means in the Bible when it calls people righteous. So what does righteous mean when it comes to the Bible? Look there on your page. Let's think about these words for a minute. First, righteous, dikaios. Righteous is a quality. The idea of something or someone being righteous implies a rightness measured against a standard or a norm. I think of a ruler, you know, like we all carried around in our bags in primary school. It's a ruler against which you can measure something to determine if it's right or not. So, for example, in the Bible, Psalm 71 talks about righteous deeds. Those are deeds that meet a certain standard. They're not wicked or evil or unjust, but they're righteous. They meet up to a moral standard of what's right. The Bible talks about righteous deeds, righteous laws, righteous ways, but most often it's a quality of a person, a righteous person, someone who measures up to the norm or standard. But even more importantly, it's a quality ascribed to God. God is called righteous in the Bible. We're going to come back to that in a moment. What about righteousness, dikaiosene? It's the noun form, the righteous quality of a person considered in itself. You can see there on your page the description of God from Psalms 97. Yahweh reigns, let the earth be glad. Now, I'm just going to pause there for a moment. That word, Y-H-W-H, all in capital letters, that's God's name. You might not realise God has a name. Throughout the Old Testament, the one true God revealed himself to his people using this name, Y-H-W-H, which we sort of have to pronounce some way, so we say Yahweh. What does it mean? Well, it probably means I am who I am. For various reasons, there's a tradition in English which translates Yahweh as the Lord, using capital letters for Lord to indicate that it is this personal name of God that's being translated. The reason I've used Yahweh here rather than the Lord 
is because when we talk about God in our culture, it can't be assumed anymore that we're all talking about the same thing. There are many gods in our culture. Do I mean the God of Islam? Do I mean the gods of Hinduism? Do I mean the spirits of the ancestors? Do I mean the universe? What God am I talking about? And that matters because all those gods are different. And those different worldviews all say different things about their gods or their God. Those gods are not the same in their own character, in how they relate to us or in what they expect of us. So which God are we really speaking about? The Christian Bible is very clear. There is only one God who is actually God. The others are all false pretenders. They're non-gods. They're fictions designed actually to mislead and destroy. The only true and living God is Yahweh, the God who revealed Himself to Abraham, Moses and the Old Testament nation of Israel and who revealed Himself climactically in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. This is the true God who, as the verse says, He reigns, He alone rules as the true God overall. What's more, as the first part of that verse says, it's a good thing that Yahweh reigns. The whole earth should be glad of the fact. We'll come back to why in a moment. Let's start the verse again. Yahweh reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Notice what verse 2 says there about Yahweh, the one true God. Clouds and thick darkness surround Him. That is, He's not someone you can just walk up to. He's fearsome, but He's also good. Look at the second half of that verse. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. All Yahweh does, every aspect of His rule is righteous and just. Since all He does is righteous, righteousness is a quality that belongs to Him. So how does all this relate to justification? Well, to justify is the verb form of the same root word. To justify means to put right, to render something as right. So instead of the word justify, we could just use the word righteousify. That would be at least clearer, or maybe not, but it gives to justify something, to righteousify it, is to give it a status of righteous. Justification has links to a courtroom, it's legal language. When a judge declares you innocent of the charges, you are justified, you're vindicated in the eyes of the court. The judge has declared you righteous, in the right, in this matter. And justification becomes righteousification. We could have called this conference righteousification. And no one would have known what we were talking about. But that just clears up the technical point about justification, righteousness. You've got to pull all of those words together. Okay. Now, I mentioned a moment ago, the Bible often describes God as righteous. That's a big deal. But it's also a bit confusing. Let me explain. First of all, it's a big deal because it means that the Christian God is the definitive source for whatever is right. Whatever is righteous, whatever righteousness looks like, it must be traced back to Him. Have a look at the passage from Isaiah 45, which is there on your page. 
Assemble yourselves and come together. Draw near, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge, those who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Yahweh? There is no God beside me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is no one besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone forth in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Only in Yahweh it shall be said of me, are righteousness and strength. All who were incensed against him shall come to him and be ashamed. In Yahweh all the offspring of Israel shall triumph and glory. From Isaiah 45. Note a few things here from verse 24. Can you see it there? Only in the Lord, in Yahweh, are righteousness and strength. That is, all the other so-called gods are just idols. They aren't the real deal. They're not the real thing. Righteousness is only found in Yahweh, the God who revealed himself to Israel, the God who we know now as Father, Son and Spirit, the Christian God. He is the final referent or reference point for righteousness. But notice also the universal scope of this passage. Verse 22, all the ends of the earth are called to turn to him. Or verse 23, every knee will bow before him, every tongue will confess. Yahweh is the reference point of righteousness for everyone, for every nationality. No matter what your ethnicity, no matter what your language, no matter what your religion, Yahweh is the reference point of righteousness for all. Finally, note that God's righteousness is linked closely to His saving action. Verse 21, there is no God beside me, a righteous God and a saviour. There is no one beside me, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Yahweh alone is the God who can save all the ends of the earth and saving people is connected to His righteousness. But this is where it might get a bit confusing. Remember I said just a moment ago that righteousness implied a standard or a norm to measure against, like a ruler? What does it mean when we say God is righteous? Compared to what standard? Against what norm do you measure God's actions or God's character? That's actually a tricky question. So the only way you can answer it is by looking at all the references in the Bible to God and righteousness, all of them. Look at them all and then try and work it out when you pull all that information together. And when you look at that, I think the best answer is that God's righteousness is measured against his own expressed intentions for creation. If God fulfills all of his plans and purposes for creation, if he makes everything conform to his will, then he is righteous. If he does not see his plans and purposes fulfilled, if things don't end up conforming to his will, then he's not been righteous. 
Now, we see this in Paul's letter to the Romans, where Paul repeatedly defends God's righteousness. Part of what Paul addresses is the charge that maybe God has not fulfilled his purposes. Maybe God's not been acting righteously. But God's righteousness is all about his fulfilling of his plans and promises to creation. You can see there on page 12, Bill Dumbrell puts it like this. He says, God's righteousness is his action, exhibiting his continued, uh, his continued fidelity to his intentions expressed in the act of creation itself to make things totally and finally correspond to his will and thus be right. These intentions, he says, are continued through a sequence of Old Testament covenants and find final expression in Jesus' inauguration of the new covenant. Now, there's a diagram on page 12 there showing the sequence of covenants in the Bible by which God moves his intentions for the world forward from creation through to new creation. Let's step through this diagram there just to get our heads in the big picture. First of all, you can see there, God tells us in the Bible that his good intentions for this creation have been compromised by human sin, by our universal refusal to let God be God over our lives. We've rejected his word and his way. And the Bible tells us that that has corrupted all of our relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with the rest of creation. In fact, even creation itself has been subjected to corruption and futility because of human sin. But God's intention has never been to let us or this creation destroy itself through sin. And the Bible outlines the plan God put into action to bring this sin-corrupted creation through to a glorious new creation, where there is no sin and no effects of sin. And central to God's plan is what he achieved in Jesus, the Christ, who stands at the centre of all of God's plans for his creation. But what God achieved in Jesus is the culmination of a series of covenants or binding agreements that God established with his creation, in particular through his people, the Old Testament nation of Israel. Now, in faculty time this week, we're going to be looking at what is arguably the most important of these Old Testament covenants, the covenant Yahweh established with Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 through to 22. And as we'll see this week, that covenant with Abraham laid a foundation and framework for all the covenants that came after with Moses, with the Israelites at Mount Sinai, with King David and his descendants, and for the promised better new covenant, which was promised repeatedly throughout the Old Testament but brought into being through Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, we're going to explore more features of this big story of the Bible as the week goes on, because it's the broader story into which justification and our justification by God through Jesus finds its place. But for now, there's just one fundamental truth to recognise and to hold on to. It's this, as you saw on the diagram, the whole of human history is driven forward by God's own righteousness. That whole movement from creation through to new creation is the outworking of God's own righteousness. He is determined 
to bring all things into conformity with his good will so that he might fulfill all of his good plans and purposes for his creation. He won't be thwarted or put off by sin. He's determined to make all things right. That's his righteousness. The righteousness of the one true living God, of Yahweh, is the ultimate motivating force of history. His righteousness means the story of our lives, the story of all human existence, it will have a good ending, a glorious and a joyful ending. Why can I say that? Because God is righteous. He will not let his good intentions for his creation and his creatures be thwarted. He's righteous. To summarise what we've been exploring, if you want to jot it down, God's righteousness is relational. It exists in this context of God's relationship with all of creation expressed through these covenants that we'll look at this week. God's righteousness is normative. It sets a standard. Everything is measured against His will and His purpose. God's righteousness is active. It's seen in Him both judging and saving. So really everything we do this week in the talks and the electives and discussion groups is filling out this picture of what it means for God to be righteous. And so in the final part of this talk, I just want to point out three things about God's righteousness. First is this, the primary place we learn that God is righteous is in the gospel of Jesus. Gospel is one of those words that you hear Christians use all the time. Gospel just means grand public announcement, usually an announcement of good news. So, if our president, Jack, were to get up and say, I have bought a mobile coffee business and I've brought it here to Ancon as the new owner, free coffees on me all week. That would be a gospel, a grand public announcement of good news. Well, the Christian gospel is a grand public announcement about Jesus. In particular, the Christian gospel announces that God is in the process of making all things right through Jesus and his death and resurrection. God is in the process of fixing everything up, and that is good news. And that gospel announcement reveals God's righteousness. Have a look at the section of Romans, chapter 1, that I've printed out there for you at the top of page 13. Writing the, to the Christians in Rome in the first century, Paul starts by summarising the Christian gospel message. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Let's pause there for a moment. Four important truths about the Christian gospel from those verses. First, verse 1, the Christian gospel is the gospel of God. That is, this gospel announcement comes from God. It's not the invention of human beings. Jack's gospel, free coffee for all, that is entirely his own invention and initiative, unless he has actually received a word from the Lord about it. But the Christian gospel comes from the one true living God himself. Second, verse 3, the gospel of God is all about Jesus. Paul says there in verse 3, this gospel is concerning his, that is God's son, whom Paul identifies at the end of verse 3 as Jesus Christ our Lord. Jack's gospel, all about coffee. God's gospel, all about Jesus. In particular, note Paul focuses in that verse on Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. Third, verse 5, the Christian gospel is a message for all people everywhere. See halfway through verse 5, Paul says, among all the nations. Christian gospel is not just for first century Romans or just for tertiary educated Westerners. The Christian gospel isn't just for white people, isn't just for black people or for Asians or for Africans. God's gospel about Jesus is to go out among all the nations. Jack's gospel, it's for the people at Ancon. God's gospel about Jesus, it's for all people everywhere, which means it's a gospel from God for you too. This message from God about Jesus is good news for you. Finally, also from verse 5, God's gospel calls for a response. Middle of verse 5, Paul talks about bringing about the obedience of faith among all the nations. The gospel of God calls us to respond with faith, with trust in the Lord Jesus, who is at the centre of his gospel. Think about Jack's gospel. Free coffee all week, that isn't much good if you don't turn up to the coffee cart and receive the good things that Jack has promised you. You have to trust his message, don't you? All gospels call for trust, the response of trust in that message. It's the same with God's gospel about Jesus. It calls for a response. Faith. Put your trust in Jesus and obediently follow Him. And maybe this week is the week that you'll take up that call to put your faith in Jesus as we explore His gospel. You seriously could make no better life decision. It's happened before, right here at Ancon. And I'm actually praying that if you haven't really responded to God's gospel about Jesus by putting your faith in Him, that you will do it this week. So we've looked at what Paul says about the content of God's gospel, those first five verses, but look at what else he says about it in verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. 
two more important points to note then. First, verse 16, the Christian gospel brings salvation. Notice what Paul says in the middle of the verse, this gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. God's gospel message about Jesus is the means by which he saves people. When they believe, they respond to his gospel message with faith, he saves them. See, Jack's gospel can caffeinate you. God's gospel can save you. I mean, caffeination is, I guess, a type of salvation. It's short-term salvation from the effects of too many late nights up at the prayer tower. But God's gospel about Jesus offers you eternal salvation when you respond with faith. And as we'll see tonight, it's a salvation that we all desperately need and can be found in no one else. And then finally here in verse 17 in this section, and this really is the point of looking at this passage, God's gospel reveals His righteousness. Remember, God's righteousness is that He faithfully fulfills all of His good intentions for His creation. And Paul says, the gospel reveals God is righteous. He's fulfilling His good intentions for His creation. How so? Well, notice something about verse 16 and 17. The two verses, 16 and 17, are in parallel. Verse 16 has three sort of clauses, which I've set out over three lines for you. And verse 17 has three clauses, which match up with the three clauses in verse 16. The first line of both verses is about the gospel. And the second line of both verses parallels salvation with the revelation of God's righteousness. As Paul says, the way we know God is righteous is because He saves people. He doesn't let sin win. He doesn't let us, His creatures, destroy ourselves through sin. He saves people and fulfills His good intentions for His creatures. And the gospel message about Jesus is the means by which He saves people. So the gospel through which God saves people reveals that God really, really is righteous. See, Jack's coffee gospel, it reveals that he's a nice guy, that he's generous, maybe that he understands the deep student need for frequent caffeination. Similarly, God's gospel about Jesus, his death and resurrection, it reveals many things about God. It reveals that he loves us. That he understands suffering firsthand. But it also reveals that he's righteous. Because it shows us he is fully committed to ensuring his good intentions for his creation are fulfilled. Well, the God, the God of the Christian Bible who's revealed himself in Jesus is actually righteous. That's a bit contentious today. It's a contentious claim to make. As EU staff worker senior staff worker, Matt Moffat said, there on your book, these days God is seen as a bit of a jerk. But don't worry, it's not his personal view. Remember, we're talking here today, this week, about the God who condemns people to hell. The God who restricts marriage to a man and a woman. The God who condemns men, women and children to death at different points in the Old Testament. 
the God who insists that he is the only true God and calls everyone to give up whatever other gods they might have and serve only him. The God who is all-powerful and all-loving, yet allows all sorts of evil to continue, even, it seems at times, to flourish. The God who won't intervene to end my suffering. Is this God that we're talking about actually righteous? These are legit questions. They have weight. What can we say in response? Well, there are many things that can be said, that God's ways are sometimes hidden from us, that's true, that His ways are higher than ours, that we can only see part of the picture when He alone has the whole, that He loves us and promises to be working for our good even when it doesn't seem like it for us, these are all true. But the most important response is the truth we just looked at. The assurance that God is righteous is in the Gospel about Jesus. The Gospel about Jesus and what God is doing, has done and will do through Him, that's the real revelation of God's righteousness. That's where we see God's commitment at great cost to Himself to fully put things right. And by saying the Gospel is the answer, I don't mean a superficial understanding of the Gospel. Because when faced with these sorts of questions about the righteousness of God, there's an unhelpful way that Christians can sometimes say, oh well, Jesus died for you, so it's all okay. I think that like makes light of the weightiness of those questions. If we want to address questions about hell and evil and suffering and sexuality, then we need to have a richer, deeper grasp of what God is doing in His Son, Jesus. It's getting our head around the entirety of that diagram we saw on page 12, where God's righteousness drives the whole story from creation through to new creation with Jesus and His death and resurrection right there in the centre. So really, the rest of this week is exploring just that. How has God shown Himself to be truly righteous in the Gospel about Jesus? This week's going to take us deep into God's Gospel, deeper into His good plans and intentions for us as His creatures and deeper into all that He's done and is doing and will do to see those plans fulfilled through Jesus, His Son. And so the final point I want to make this afternoon is this. God's righteousness is not just important historically to understand what God's been doing through history and it's not just important theologically in the face of accusations levelled against Him. I want to say to you that God's righteousness is important practically. That God is righteous is a big deal for your day-to-day life. Here's why. You need someone you can trust. You need someone you can trust. When things don't go to plan... When life sucks, when your parents split up, or your boyfriend cheats on you, or your girlfriend dumps you, when you lose your job, when you fail your course, when your kids get bullied, when you get retrenched 
at 54. When the politicians disappoint you, when you're depressed about climate change, when church is disappointing, when you're burdened with a chronic illness, when your ministry doesn't seem to produce any fruit, when it comes to big life decisions, when it comes to lots of little life decisions, you need someone you can trust. We all do. You're going to rely just on your own gut instinct, your own reserves of strength. Are they going to be enough? You're going to rely on those around you. Are they so much wiser and stronger and more reliable than you? If the Christian God is truly righteous, then that means He really is at work in the world to make everything totally and finally right through Jesus Christ. He's bringing everything, you, me, creation itself, into conformity with His will and fulfilling all of His good intentions for His creation. So He's the one you can trust. When we open the Christian Bible and see what, God, what Jesus says about suffering, you can know that He has your best interests at heart. When we read what He says about sexuality, even if at points it conflicts with what the world around us says, we know He's enlightening our darkness in love and for our good. And the same goes for when we read about what He says about money and greed and career and relationships and life decisions. Because God is righteous... We know He is working for our ultimate good. And that's not just in theory. We know He really is righteous, working for our good, because we see it in the gospel about Jesus and His death and resurrection. So you can trust Him above everyone else. When there is no one else, you can trust Him in the big and the small. And my hope and prayer is that you will not just start to see that as we dig into this topic of justification, but that you will start to live it. That this whole topic of justification, that God is righteous and that we are justified in Him, that this becomes a precious and powerful truth in your life for all the rest of the days that our Lord Jesus might give you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you have revealed to us that you are alone righteous. You are bringing all things in conformity with your good will and purpose through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your gospel in which you have revealed your great righteousness through all that you have done for us in the Lord Jesus, in his death and resurrection for our sakes. We pray for ourselves this week, Father, that as we read your word and think about these wonderful, precious and powerful truths, that you might write them deep into our hearts and minds so that we might know you better, love you more and serve you with everything you've given us. And we pray it in Jesus' great name. Amen.